You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Gideon. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm excellent. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're a Gideon Rosen professor of philosophy at Princeton University, whose machinery just emitted a ping. Was that an email alert or? It is, and I cannot figure out how to turn those off. That's okay. As long as you're not doing it to show off, like uh, like about how how popular you are or something, how many emails you get. Um, so uh, regular viewers of The Right Show and or Meaning of Life TV and or subscribers to one of those podcasts may be familiar with you. We've had conversations about uh, materialism, about free will. Uh, today we're going to tackle something called moral realism, which we will uh, try to define shortly. First, let me say another thing or two about you. You you uh, started off doing philosophy of mathematics, I think, or at least at some at some point did a lot of that, right? That's right. And you're you're co-author of uh, the book, which I gather is about that. Maybe it's not. I don't know. The book, a subject with no object. That's correct. That is about the philosophy of mathematics. Okay. I think that's enough about that. All right. <laughs> the, uh, but also, you're co-editor of the Norton Introduction to Philosophy, which is an important uh, thing that you've developed with, with colleagues, a kind of a somewhat novel approach to teaching introductory philosophy in a way. It's different from most intro philosophy textbooks. The idea is that, like lots of people, we would teach introductory philosophy from primary texts, but most of the primary texts were not written with students in mind. Most of them are written for the prose and are mostly unreadable for students and for interesting, interested outsiders who want to learn something about what's going on in contemporary philosophy. So our book includes some classic texts, many of the central texts from 20th and 21st century analytic philosophy, but also 30 or so essays written by contemporary philosophers designed to introduce an audience full of college freshmen to some aspect of their work by explaining it in terms that anybody can understand. So those essays are the main novel feature of the book. The premise is that philosophy is an unusual subject in that beginning students can be put in a position to see something about where the cutting edge is over the course of a single semester. Hmm. You can't do that in math. You can't do that in physics. You can't do that in English literature, but you can do it in philosophy if you're judicious, and that's the premise of the book. Okay. And I'm told the book is doing well. You, you, you're you nodding your head. You're confirming that. In fact, I think you're the person who told me in the first place. So it's not like I have a whole lot of sources attesting <laughs> this. But anyway, uh, I, I think it's a true statement. I trust you. Uh, and maybe what we'll do today is to try to give, uh, in a certain sense, intro students a glimpse of the cutting edge. Maybe we'll get that far in discussing moral realism. Now, tell me, um, how much have I been oversimplifying things when I have told people that Moral realism refers to basically the question of whether there is such a thing as moral truth. How close is that? I think that's an oversimplification. Okay. Um, there are philosophers who have said that 
morality is nonsense. That is that moral talk is just meaningless gibberish. There are philosophers who have said that it's meaningful and it makes sense, but it's systematically false, systematically mistaken in the way in which the doctrines of a bogus religion would be systematically false or mistaken. Those guys say we reject moral truth, and those guys are definitely not moral realists. So anyone who rejects the idea that there are true moral claims, that guy is not a moral realist. But there are philosophers who would say, yeah, of course there are moral truths. You shouldn't kick dogs for fun. You shouldn't break your promises. But the truths are soft or relative or subjective or conventional. They you can call them truths if you want, but morality is not in the business of describing a real mind-independent subject matter. Mm-hmm. And when I say moral realism, that's what I mean. Moral realism is the view, not just that there are moral claims that you can get away with, that moral claims that are correct, but that moral claims, when they're true, are made true by the moral facts. Right. So, so that's so, what I mean by moral realism. So a moral realist believes that a moral assertion like it's bad to kick dogs is like a factual assertion. It, re- it refers to things that are either facts, moral facts, or certainly an, or, or analogous to facts. The, 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 the way you think about the sentence and its truth is very much the way you think about a factual assertion, which can be tested, which I guess isn't the same. I mean, they don't have to believe. Does a moral realist have to believe that they know what the test is or that they can tell you what the test is? They can tell you the way to test the moral claim? No. So there's that. Moral realism usually involves what you might call a metaphysical commitment to there being an objective moral truth and an epistemological or Mm -hmm. cognitive commitment to the knowability of those truths and to there being some way for us to know them. Let's just talk about the metaphysical side of it first. That's where I think the... Mm the main action is. So the moral realist says there is an objective moral truth, just as the theological realist says there is an objective fact about whether there is a God and what that God is like. Mm -hmm. Can we know it? That's a further question, but the facts are out there and that's the, that's the heart of the doctrine. Okay. So the main claim is that uh, there are moral facts that are in some sense out there. They, they stand independent of, uh, independent of the views of individual humans, independent of changes in actual morality on the ground. Right. They are, they are in some sense out there. Is it at all like, I mean, we've talked, I think, about kind of a kind of realism in the realm of mathematics. People who think that mathematical truths are kind of out there in some sense that's, not always easy to describe or easy for me to understand. Um, but is there uh, an analogy there? Yeah, there's an exact analogy. So this talk about a bunch of truths being out there, that's a metaphor and a sharp statement of the sort that a philosopher would take fully seriously would dispense with the metaphor. It means at least this. The mathematical truths 
are the case and would still have been the case no matter what we had said or thought about them. Mm -hmm. They are independent of our theories and opinions. Similarly, the moral realist can say, the moral truth is out there. By that, I just mean moral questions have answers, and the answers are as they are, regardless of what we happen to believe at the moment, regardless of our attitudes, sensibilities, practices, opinions, no matter how those things had been, the moral facts would still have been just as they are. Mm -hmm. So uh, here's something I'm a little bit maybe confused about. You know, I I, I did my uh, my customary seven minutes of research in advance of this. And in this case, that meant looking at the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia Philosophy Online, which is pretty good, right? Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, probably better than Wikipedia if you're looking into philosophy. I mean, Wikipedia has its virtues, but the thing about a good encyclopedia is that the article has the sense of, of a, of a single coherent voice guiding you through things. And, and, and I liked, I liked that. Anyway, um, the, uh, they referred to, to, um, cognitive cognitivists and non-cognitivists as to, uh, in the context of moral, uh, realism and it sounds like uh, cognitivists believe it's it, it, it almost sounds like the difference between these two schools is about the question of like what people mean when they say when they when they make what seems to be a moral statement when somebody says you should not kick that dog do they kind of in their head mean it's morally wrong in a, in a, in a deep and objective sense or do they just mean I don't want you to kick that dog is, is that right? The, the cognitivist um, believes they do mean it as a moral statement? I, I mean, in other words, is the difference between cognitivists and non-cognitivists an actual empirical question about just what ordinary people mean when they use moral language? Yes. So, suppose you have two philosophers, they agree that you shouldn't kick dogs. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing they would both say. They'll defend it, however you defend that kind of thing. And now we ask, what kind of mental state are we expressing when we make that sort of claim? The cognitivist says, when you say it's raining outside, you're expressing the belief that it's raining outside. When you say you shouldn't kick dogs, you're expressing the belief that one shouldn't kick dogs, that it's wrong to kick dogs. A belief is a mental state that is designed to represent the world as it is and that's mistaken when things are not as the mental state represents it as being. The cognitivist sees no psychological difference between the mental state expressed by a moral assertion and the mental state expressed by an ordinary descriptive factual assertion. The non-cognitivist, on the other hand, says, the sentences we use may be the same, the grammar and so on, the syntax may be the same, but factual assertions express beliefs, whereas moral assertions express preferences, intentions, mm -hmm. states of approval and disapproval, mental states that are not designed to reflect the world, but are rather play some other role in our psychological economy. Mm-hmm. So non-cognitivists are, by definition, 
anti-realists. They're not moral realists. Uh, I, I gather that you could be a cognitivist and not wind up being a moral realist if you, uh, if you, you know, you could believe that the, the uh, moral statements are expressions of, of, you know, about moral truth, but still that there's no such thing as moral truth, right? You could believe those two things. Right. So you could be a, <laughs> the, the, Range of possible views here is pretty extensive. You can be a cognitivist and what's called an error theorist. Mm-hmm. The error theorist holds that although moral statements express moral beliefs, morality is so infected with error that none of those positive statements are true. So the error theorist is like the atheist. An atheist thinks that religious statements very often are from mm-hmm express people's beliefs. He just thinks that because there is no God, they're all wrong. Mm -hmm. That's a form of cognitivism. The statements express beliefs, but it's not realism about God. And you can do the same thing in ethics. So, so just to be clear, are the, are the non-cognitives and the cognitives arguing about what the conscious conception of the meaning of the statement is to the person uttering it? Because I, no. I think I think almost all people do think there's moral truth. I mean, they, they, when they say something's right or wrong, consciously they're thinking that that's a statement that's either true or false. It either is in accordance with moral truth or it's not. Right. If the debate makes sense at all, it's not a debate about what people think they're doing. Okay. You're probably right, although it's hard to pin people down on this, but maybe... Maybe it's true. Most people think, if they can be got to answer the question, that they're making objective, factual claims when they make moral claims. Rather, it's a debate about what people are really doing when they make moral assertions. And the non-cognitivist says, people may take themselves to be describing moral reality, but if they're doing anything at all, they're just giving vent to their non-cognitive attitudes. They think they're describing real moral features of things, but really all they're saying is, boo for kicking dogs. Yeah, but what does it mean to say that's what they really mean? I mean, there, there is, there, there is, we can, I think, speak meaningly about their conscious understanding of what they mean. I think there is such a thing, even though it's hard to verify since they're the only ones who have access to it. But leaving that aside, I think that's a real thing. I don't know... Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, oh, I do have a, one idea of what it could mean, but my first response is I don't understand what it even means to say you think you mean <laughs> that, that there's moral truth out there, but that's not the actual meaning of your utterance, even though it's your conscious understanding. But what does that even mean? Where does the actual intention reside? I think it's got to be something like this. When people use moral language, their moral assertions are caused by certain states of mind. Before you say, uh, you shouldn't be kicking bombs like that. You have the feeling that... There's something, there's some mental state that, if you're being sincere and straightforward, you're giving voice to, and the mental state Mm -hmm. is prior to the assertion. Now we ask for a characterization of that mental state, and people are not automatically experts on how to characterize 
the mental states that give rise to utterances of a certain kind. And the philosopher or the psychologist can say, we've looked at that mental state. We've looked at what typically causes it, what its effects typically are, how it typically responds to evidence. And here's what we'll tell you. That mental state is not a belief. That mental state is something more like a desire. Okay. So in a way, I guess the question is, is it, I mean, you would say, most people would say, I desire for the, the morally good state to be reached. I, I, you know, I desire that. But, but the question is, is it really the case that you desire it because you've independently, objectively concluded that it's the moral ideal? Or is it the case that you consider it moral because you desire it? So it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a statement about the actual mechanics of, of the motivational system that leads you to utter a sentence. Right. I think the argument for these non-cognitivist views often goes like this. Well, one version of it goes like this. If we interpret these moral assertions as expressing um, regular beliefs about a moral subject matter, and then we go look and we see that there is no such subject matter for them to be about, we would be forced to impute massive error to the man on the street. But it's an uncharitable, bad interpretation of a language user. If you're forced to represent him as massively mistaken, better to see him as not in the business of expressing beliefs at all. At least then he can't be wrong. So it's more charitable to yeah. call. Uh, and I gather that, that are we talking about expressivism? Is that the term for the belief that that moral statements are actually just expressions of desire of the way you want things to be? Yeah. Uh, expressivism is the view that um, what look like ordinary moral assertions mm-hmm. are expressions of non-cognitive attitudes, beliefs. I'm sorry, desires, preferences. Something like that. Okay, um, and and so <clears throat> some not some anti-realists are expressivists. Are all anti-realists expressivists, or can you be something else and still not be a moral realist? The error theorist I characterized before, who thinks oh, okay. he's expressed beliefs, uh, but the beliefs right. are all false. He's also an anti-realist. Okay, so and that's... then there are moral relativists or conventionalists who think moral claims can be true. But they're not made true by an objective subject matter. They're made true by something that is in some way up to us. Our practices, our conventions, our sensibilities. Mm -hmm. That guy is a cognitivist, but he's not a full-blooded realist because he doesn't think that the facts are fully objective. Right. So that, yeah. So you would be a a, a kind of moral relativist if you held that view. So, um... Well, before I, I want to ask a question about, I want to give you a particular evolutionary psychology view of, of what kind of moral, uh, certain kinds of moral sentiments are and certain kinds of moral expressions are and ask you where it, it fits on the map we've been laying out. But, but first, um, I, I would assume it's the case that if you, that some anti-realists, who uh that who who believe um 
Well, they have to believe at a minimum that, and to put it again too crudely and simply, there is no such thing as moral truth, right? That's the crude version. Um, that if you walk up to them and say, don't you think all other things being equal, human um, human happiness is better than human suffering? In some sense of the word better, that, you know, this is not a statement of empirical fact. I mean, the, the, the suffering and the, and the happiness are just facts about the case. But wouldn't you sign on? To the, the idea that it's better if you, if, if you, if there's just one person in this imaginary universe you're controlling and you had the choice, you would make them happy and you would think that's a better universe. What, don't, don't, aren't a lot of them tempted to say yes to that? <laughs> sure. So these disagreements that we're talking about, these so called meta ethical disagreements, mm-hmm. disagreements about the nature of moral language and the nature of moral thought are supposed to be, by many of these theorists, compatible with our accepting the very same first-order normative or moral claims. So we can have a bunch of people sitting around the table and they all say it's better to make happy people than miserable people. Happiness is better than misery. They all agree about that. The realist says, and I'll tell you what makes my claim true, some objective normative fact, the anti-realists will say, my claim isn't the kind of thing that can be true or false. When I said it, I was expressing my preference. Oh, I understand. They'll say exactly the same things at the first order level and then give different theoretical accounts of the mental state they were expressing when they said it. So they say it's just my preference, even though the person in the imaginary universe is not me. We all know it's our preference for us to be happy. <laughs> um, uh, and then they would give different kinds of explanations if you ask them to elaborate on why it is their preference. There, they would say different things, but the one thing they can't say is because it's morally true. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay. So let me. Um, I, I mean, I want to. I, I want to do two things. I want to um, give you an uh, an account, an evolutionary psychology account of the evolution of uh, moral intuition and so on uh, and see just where where it, it fits on the map, as I said. And then I want to go a little further and, and ask whether uh, some extensions of that view or some versions of that view might, might, might actually steer one toward moral realism. Because I, I would think that the, the kind of default position once you start saying, well, if you accept the idea that our moral instincts did evolve, I would think that the default position is, is that that steers you toward anti-realism, right? I, I mean, because, well, then they are just byproducts of evolution on a particular planet. Uh, there are, you know, just like um, lots of things that, you know, just like fingernails, you know, no, 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 nothing special about fingernails. Um so I would think that's a default position, but I'm, I'm going to see uh, if, if I can um, get you to take seriously, not that I'm even sure I do, but take seriously the idea that maybe one could be a Darwinian and, and a realist. I don't know if that's possible, but were you going to say something about I was that? Say, the mere fact that our um, moral sensibilities and moral uh, capacities evolved, that can't be enough to 
make anti-realism the default because all of our cognitive capacities evolved. Our perceptual capacities evolved, our rational capacities evolved, our mathematical capacities evolved. Mm -hmm. And if you take the view that whenever you've got an evolved capacity, you should step back and think, that's probably not tracking anything real. It's probably just something that was locally useful to some animals on some small planet. Then you'll undercut the evolutionary biology that you're relying on to make this claim in the first place. Because evolutionary biology is something we accept because our evolved cognitive capacities seem to suggest to us that it's the case. So if there's going to be an argument from the fact that our moral faculties evolved to anti-realism, it's got to point to something special about ethics, not right. the mere fact that it's an evolved capacity. Right, or other side of coin, special about uh, the realm of factual assertion. I, yeah. I mean, you, one could argue that, well, okay, it's true that our uh, descriptive tendencies, mm-hmm. you know, for me to say that, that that bridge is a mile from here, or for me to say that bridge will not support your weight, those also are evolved, rep, 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 represent evolved cognitive tendencies, but in that case, there's a way to test the assertion that everyone seems to agree on. Everyone seems to agree that if you walk over the bridge and fall through, I was correct. It wouldn't support your weight. Um, and then to, to take that a little further to get, to get into mm. realism, um, you know, the, uh, one could say that to say you shouldn't walk over that bridge, uh, well, never mind. Let's not get into moral realism. So, uh, so here's, here's, uh, you know, I, I think, um, first of all, the, the evolutionary psychology account of, of the idea that there is such a thing as a moral good, as moral truth. And I think that is, seems to be an intuition in people. I, I, that's my view. They, they argue that way. No, this is where I really do deserve this this time. And you would deserve it if, if you were, um, in my shoes. And in fact, I think you could argue. I mean, another thing that seems to be pretty constant is this intuition that in some sense, like cases should be treated alike. In other words, people really tend to argue if you were in my position, you would be entitled to this. I mean, even, even if you go to, to, you know, uh, 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 uh you know, even, even if the assertion is if you were chief of the tribe, you would deserve this. You're not. I am. So I get it. But, but that tends to be the nature of the claim. It's not that it's, it's because it's me. It's because I'm chief, right? I mean, this is a common tendency as well. So first of all, there, there may be, and then just quickly to touch on a specific intuition that seems to be something like close to universal. Um, the idea that good deeds should be rewarded, bad deeds should be punished. It seems to be a deep intuition that when somebody does something really horrible and they are punished, uh, A, tends to feel good. And B, there's this intuition that, that some balance has been restored out there, that, that it's really a morally good thing to punish them. Okay. So you're nodding your head. You seem to agree that there are some intuitions ranging from the very idea that there is moral truth to specific moral truths that seem to be sufficiently common that they could at least have a basis in the genes, right? It's possible. I, you know, it's possible. I'm inclined to think at some level, it's gotta be, that's how it's gotta be. Um, The human beings we're sampling here don't just have genes in common. They also have an awful lot of cultural history in common. So from the fact that these things are widely shared, it doesn't follow. No, no, it doesn't follow. 
interestingly biological about it, but it doesn't fall. I mean, the, hy- the yeah. hypothesis of a genetic genetic grounding is, yeah. to some extent, corroborated by the fact of universality, if it's a fact. Right. Um, but it, it's not proven. And uh, moreover, there clearly are people who don't share these intuitions. So it's not like hardwired in the strictest sense by the genes. We know that for sure. But that's not to say it doesn't have a – there isn't a strong genetic inclination. So um, in any event, I guess I, I – my, you know, I would say that on the one hand, it almost – if you're a serious Darwinian and, and you know, you kind of are going to probably argue that in some sense, these things exist because they have been good for the genes in the past. So in some sense, they are they are an expression of genetic um, self-interest. And uh, even though you, you could find yourself in an environment where they don't actually serve the organism and, and, and they get you in trouble, like road rage, you know, I think <laughs> I am sure that that driver is wrong and deserves punishment. That intuition winds up getting me killed because it partly because it didn't evolve for, a, 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 a you know, a context of uh, super highways. Right. Um, but um, at the same time, my own view and here we get into just this is a little conjectural. I think I could argue for it, but. I think if you if you ask me why is there a shared belief that there is such thing as moral truth, I think that evolved as a way to serve genetic interest in a context of non-zero-sum realities. In other words, it's analogous to uh, evolution invented it in a way that's analogous to humans having invented money. Humans invented money because it facilitates non-zero-sum exchange. We can do a deal that will benefit both of us more easily if there's money. And and what have you accepted the, this proposition of mine, that that's at the, at the most fundamental level what the evolution of the of the sense that there is moral truth? That, that if, if you just, just stipulate that that's a correct – Account and on the one hand, it is an expression of genetic interest. On the other hand, uh, it's an expression uh, that evolved in a context of non-zero-sum games, such that it can actually be—it is a utility increaser. It, it 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 has had the effect of increasing the net amount of human welfare because it lets us do these deals, come to agreements, sort out our differences, and and reach a, a deal that's. Um, not as bad for all of us as might have been the case. If you accept that, does that have any relevance to this at all? <laughs> because well, well, you know, we're pushing the uh, yeah. some version of the skeptical argument, yeah. the argument which starts with um, an evolutionary story like that as a premise and tries to cast doubt on the objective reality of um, the moral world. It would go something like this. Suppose you're right. Suppose you're that at a certain point in um, our evolutionary history, some primates hit on the idea that um, you ought to keep your promises even when it's advantageous not to. And that idea spread amongst them through genetic or cultural evolution because the groups that took that view seriously were able to make and keep contracts on which they could rely, and that made certain kinds of um, cooperative activity possible, and those groups flourished. If at every stage everyone had thought, I am totally free 
to renege on these deals whenever it's in my immediate interest to do so, the groups would have been less stable, the cooperation would have been less effective, and the you know this tribe would have uh, withered by comparison with others in which the moral ideas had a deeper footing. All right, so suppose that's right. That's an explanation for why it's advantageous to believe in the duty to keep one's promises. Mm -hmm. It would be advantageous in that way, even if we erased moral reality from the scene, even if there were, in fact, no particular reason to keep your promises. It would still be advantageous for that view to take hold in a group. So this is one of those things that is so useful for us to collectively accept Mm -hmm. that we would accept it for these evolutionary reasons, even if there were nothing in reality to ground it. So that's exactly the kind of thing that a certain kind of uh, debunking evolutionary skeptic about morality says. It's such a useful story. It's no wonder we believe it. We would believe it even if there were nothing out there Mm -hmm. to make it true. Yeah, and um, and I should say, like uh, you, you've just given one account where this could make sense. It, it may sound to people who know their Darwinism like a group selectionist account. Uh, I, I don't think that's the only kind of account you could give. And I and I, I I get into this a little in my book, The Moral Animal, about evolutionary psychology. People are interested. Um, the uh, I should uh, and before I get back to uh, replying to you, maybe we should bring up one other common example, an example of a specific moral intuition is that that intuition I alluded to of uh, the sense of justice. Um, good deeds should be reward, bad deeds should be punished. If if we, let's just say, provisionally take a group selectionist view of that, it, it's another story where, well, groups that that believe that do better. Even if it's a small group, even if it's a few people, a coalition within a society or whatever, uh, they're going to, um, uh, groups that, that uh, have that intuition are going to outperform other groups, and the anti-realist would emphasize, w- would point to that and say, "Well, sure. Also, groups that are good at killing other groups do well." But you wouldn't say that killing other groups is itself a a a moral truth or the intuition that they deserve to kill the other groups. Yeah, so that makes sense. The um, let me ask you a related thing, and I first heard this specific version from Steve. Pinker. He was, um, well, let me set the stage for that by talking, you alluded to cultural evolution. Um, it, it, uh, you know, your, your, uh, colleague at Princeton, Peter Singer, has wrote a book called The Expanding Circle, in which he noted that there has been, uh, a kind of moral progress over history, if erratic, uh, and it comes in an expansion of the circle of human beings that you, in a sense, kind of consider human beings de- deserving of decent treatment. You know, 500 BC, uh, Greeks were calling members of another Greek city-state subhuman, and then they decide all Greeks are human, Persians aren't human. But then they get past that, and today, um, you know, most people we hang out with say that all humans are human. Um, th- there are There are arguments you can make. I've made them. Other people have made them. Uh, Peter's made his version of those that there's a deep uh, there's something behind that evolution that's powerful in in the nature of the dynamics of cultural evolution perhaps abetted by technological progress um, 
And, but in your view, if that's the case, again, if we stipulate that that's the case, that doesn't, um, that doesn't matter to you. I mean, let, let, well, let me set the stage a little further and I'll shut up. What Steve Pinker said is, I, as I, if I'm recalling correctly, that like, it's like, um, be, the value of non-zero sum interactions, the way, uh, uh, the, you know, the power of non-zero sumness as a way to magnify, uh, both human utility and human effectiveness, the effectiveness of groups, um, is such that, um, it, it's kind of like a principle out there, like, if you think of game theory as this abstract truth that maybe to a mathematical realist would be true, it would be real. Uh, it's, it's out there drawing humans toward, say, for example, a broader moral compass, uh, uh, more and more of an acknowledgement that other humans are humans. And he, he, he threw, Steve threw out the word, moral realism and saying, well, maybe, so maybe that's a version of moral realism that kind of has a Darwinian grounding. The idea is just that systems like ours attract, are drawn toward, uh, this thing. And what's drawing them toward it is in a sense out there. It's like, it's like a principle. It's, it's like a game theoretical principle. What do you think of that? That sounds a little mystical to me. <laughs> well, he doesn't get accused of that often enough. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, I don't mean that he is mystical. I just mean it's a strange thing to hear applied to him. I, I think he, he was just throwing it out there. Um, it's, you see, what I think is that, that, that the relationship of that to realism would have to be a kind of circular one. In other words, you would have to say, uh, the fact that, well, if you, if you say, I, I mean, you'd almost have to start off as a realist, I guess. It does get circular because if you say, well, look, we all acknowledge that you're closer to the moral truth when you say all humans are being, are deserving of decent treatment than you were before you said that. We agree that this system moves toward moral truth. Um, therefore, maybe the whole system was set up by some being that embodies moral truth. Uh, and in that sense, uh, you know, it, it, moral truths are built into the system. But but the circularity, of course, is that you had to start by judging independently that it is morally true. You know, I think that any moral realist looking at the history of moral thought has to think, however complicated the real story is, yeah, there's a, there's a sense in which um, our moral views now are better than they used to be for exactly these reasons. So... The history of moral thought, like the history of natural science or the history of mathematical thought, is the history of us getting a more accurate, more comprehensive, less error-ridden view of the subject matter. So, yeah, we're making moral progress. Any moral realist who accepts his own moral view has to say that. The question is, what role does his moral realism play in explaining that fact? In so explaining continue. why we've gotten better? Yeah, that's right. So let's let's grant that there is moral progress. That's a kind of moral historical datum. You want to explain it. Why is there moral progress? Why are we getting better and better at this? One sort of view, which you alluded to earlier, said, ah, 
there's moral progress because um, our minds were created by a divine being who has some, who knows the moral truth and wanted to disclose it to us slowly over history. That's a story. That's not one that I would accept. Yeah. And, and I should add, the, Dar- the Darwinian version of that is a kind of a deistic thing where the whole universe was created and all of this was in mind, as opposed to say, I mean, I mean, the Christian would say the intuitions come from a God that created his hands on, and that's right. different. But anyway, go ahead. The thing that I was calling mystical before is the idea that this kind of history has a teleology mm-hmm. that isn't to be explained by positing a God of any kind. There is moral truth, and we, over the course of history, are pulled towards it. That's what I'm... Unless you say more, that sounds kind of mystical to me. Unless the idea that we're pulled towards um, something... Well, it does inherently sound Mm -hmm. mystical. I I mean, maybe we should make a distinction uh, between, kind of, in principle, I think, two kinds of teleology. So when we say... Teleology referring to the idea that a system has kind of a purpose. And if if you wanted to argue that evolution has a purpose, there's two ways to do it. One is to depart to depart from the Darwinian framework and say, yeah, we're just getting pulled toward it. It's, it's almost like the causality originates in the future. And it's forget genes, whatever. It's just like, you know, the system gets sucked toward it. The other way is to say, no, it, it is exactly as Darwinians describe it. Natural selection. It's just that the whole system was set up with the, by some superior intelligence or something with that end in mind. Now, both of those are teleology, teleological. Only one is mystical in the sense that you're saying, right? Only one is a mystical account of evolution. And that's, but see, I would argue that if we get back to Steve's, you're nodding your head, I should say, to people who are just listening by podcast. The witness, uh, let the record show that the witness. <laughs> um, but I would say to get back to Steve's view, I, I think he has in mind a totally materialist mechanical account of, um, of what's driving systems toward moral, uh, progress. And that the only thing that's kind of out there are the abstract principles of non-zero-sum logic, which ultimately are what determine which systems will be successful in a pragmatic sense and flourish and which won't, if that makes sense. The witness is nodding his head. Here's a way of connecting that sort of view with moral realism. Suppose you think that when we say that some way of acting is morally right, what we mean is, or what makes that true is, that that sort of action is required by the system of rules for social cooperation that would promote, I don't know, some form of flourishing that would be best for the group. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily mysterious why groups trying out various um, systems of rules would, in a relatively stable environment, converge on the set of rules that is, in some sense, at least locally, optimal for that purpose. Mm -hmm. If that's enough 
to make those rules the correct moral rules, then it's not mysterious why we've arrived at more or less correct moral opinions and why they've gotten better over time. Right. Doing a better and better job of converging on the system of rules which, if collectively adopted, produce the best outcomes for the group. So if that's your story about what morality is about, a form of what's sometimes called rule consequentialism. Right. Rule consequentialism is the view that the true moral rules are the moral rules which, if generally accepted, would have the best consequences. Right. I mean, so utilitarianism right. being one kind of consequentialism, um, you know, in utilitarianism, you hear this distinction like, are you an act-based utilitarian? In other words, you just, you just, uh, your, your question is like, I know that my, uh, neighbor is being mean to his kids. If, if I burst in right now, I can help them. I can make things better. That's the act-based utilitarian says, yeah, the rule-based utilitarian says, yeah, but if everybody did that, whenever they think their neighbors, you know, we can't have that be the rule, so I won't do it. That, that's a distinction. That's a distinction you're alluding to. And so you're right. saying, um, that, uh, the, uh, so, so you're saying it, it, it's only, you're, you're saying Pinker's view only amounts to a moral realist view, it only supports moral realism if you make what assumption exactly? The assumption that the game theoretic equilibria that we're converging on, the system of rules that we are non-mysteriously converging on as a result of uh, biological and cultural evolution, constitute the moral rules. What's the connection between the optimal rules in that game theoretic sense and the moral rules. Mm -hmm. If you think they're one and the same thing, then you can be a moral realist and have a story about why we're converging on the moral's truth. If you think they can come apart, if you can think that the most Mm -hmm. socially useful rules could nonetheless be mistaken relative to moral reality, then it's a bit of a mystery why we would be converging on the truth rather than on the most useful rules, which may be mistaken. Yeah, it's partly, a, uh, it's related to the question of how you define the society. I mean, it's easy to show cases where my society could believe things that are good for it that are not moral, we, we would say, partly because they come at the expense of another group. Now, if you're defining as society all of the sentient beings in the universe, that's then 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 that's a little different. And maybe easy, and then maybe it's easier to equate the two. Uh, but, but I, I think you and I would agree that you still have to start off with some kind of assumption, such as, say, utilitarianism, such as the idea, uh, or, or leave aside utilitarianism per se. It, it helps to, it helps a lot to start off with something like the idea that for a sentient being to be happy is better than for a sentient being to suffer. And that seems to be, an assumption that you're introducing. It's not, it's not a, I mean, it's a truth that actually seems self-evident to a lot of people, but you as a philosopher are going to tell us that on close examination, you would argue it's not self-evident. Is that right? I think it's as, as evident as anything is in this area. I, think I agree. It's true, and I don't know anything, you know, that's more obvious that I could use to support it. So I'm totally happy to take that as a starting point yeah. in ethics. But it really is something like an intuition that is 
That's a general claim that strikes us as obviously correct when you say it. You can't say much in defense of it. Um, people who are skeptical about morality think we need a story about why anybody should think that intuitions like that are reliable guides to the moral facts. Mm-hmm. There have been times and places where everyone has found it just obvious that the world is governed by a providential God. And they couldn't point to anything more obvious than that to justify their sense that reality is pervaded by providence. Yeah. They had that view. The fact that they had it isn't much of a reason to accept it. You need some story about why intuitions like that should be a reliable source of information about what's going on. And the same thing is true in the moral case. So I think there is an epistemological puzzle about our starting point in moral thinking. But i got to say that even though that puzzle exists, it doesn't make me skeptical. So I am totally happy to grant that as a... You, you are. Point. Yeah. I, I mean, it's... You know, I mean, again, one, one reason it matters to me is, I, I mean, on the one hand, uh, I'm... Tempted to argue, I actually made an argument kind of like this in my book, Non-Zero, that, that, hey, isn't it kind of amazing, uh, the general drift of both biological evolution, which created beings like us, and, 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 um, and then cultural evolution. It, it, you know, it actually, if you accept the argument that a number of people accept, that actually it does seem to steer us for intelligible reasons towards something that we consider morally truer than, than what people believed, uh, 5,000 years ago. Um, if there is this moral progress built into the system, um, isn't that amazing? And then, of course, the objection to that is, well, wait a second. You're part of the system. I mean, you're you are in no position to judge the the initial question of what is moral progress. I mean, naturally, you believe it's morally true. You're a product of the system, but and and that's why the question is important. Like, can we at least say that in some objective or quasi-objective sense, this bedrock claim that for sentient beings to suffer is worse than for them to be happy is a defensible moral claim? You know. It's in this context that that becomes an important question. And it sounds like we're both a little on the fence. I mean, on, on the one hand, we don't feel we can prove it. On the other hand, well, anyway, are you, you're kind of on the fence. Is that right? You've got to start somewhere. Um, you know, one of the lessons of the sort of skeptical tradition in philosophy in general is if you don't spot me anything, I can't prove that sense perception is reliable. I can't prove that memory is reliable. I can't prove that our you know, predictive practices in the natural sciences are reliable. you got to spot me something if I'm going to make any progress at all in defending non-obvious claims. Mm-hmm. You've got to spot me the obvious ones. And it's no different in ethics. I think it's no embarrassment to the moral theorist hmm. that he can't prove his starting point. Nobody can. The question is what, given your starting point, you can do to make progress or what seems to you to be progress Establishing that, things that weren't independently obvious. That's interesting because I think most people would say that, well, a, a lot of people have thought a little about this, uh, would say mathematics seems to be on a firmer foundation than ethical philosophy. For one thing, mathematicians seem to all agree about a whole bunch of stuff. Ethical philosophers don't. But it sounds like one thing you're suggesting is that in all kinds of uh, realms of, of human inquiry – 
even including mathematics, at the very foundational level, you have to take something for granted that is not truly a given, that is not provable. It has to become your given. That's what an axiom is in mathematics. I mean, modern, well, our conception of mathematics as a science begins from the idea that it's got a starting point, the axioms. And the axioms, by their very nature, don't admit of proof, but they're a legitimate starting point for proof. Ethics is not mathematics. It's really different in all sorts of ways. But it would be no embarrassment if it had to have that structure, because every domain of knowledge has something like that structure. Mm -hmm. So empirical inquiry itself, in the sense that science does it, you would say also has... To even use the language of science, you have to assume some things that are not provable? Sure. We assume, at least until we get reason to believe otherwise, that sense perception is reliable. So when you look at your measuring apparatus and see that, you know, the voltmeter is reading 0.6 and you're doing your careful laboratory results, you assume that your eyes are working and that they're giving you information about the um, empirical result in front of you. Mm -hmm. And that's the starting point for empirical theorizing. But it's not just that. You assume that memory and your other records of the past are reliable. So when you use your lab notebook from yesterday to confirm some theory that's currently under discussion, you assume that your memory and how the lab notebook got to be where it is is more or less accurate. If you couldn't assume any of that stuff, all you have is momentary sensation. And momentary sensation by itself tells you nothing about the future, nothing about the past, nothing about the unobserved. To get anywhere from there, you need more. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's this is kind of encouraging in a way. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like it's a little easier to take. This is a great thought. technique for moral realists, this sort of companions in guilt strategy. Ah. You're a moral realist. Your view has all kinds of problems, metaphysical problems, epistemological problems, that is problems explaining how we know, problems squaring the view with what science seems to say in other areas. And the more you can do to show that other things, which we shouldn't be skeptical about, mm-hmm. like mathematics and fundamental physics and so on, are in the same boat, the more secure you feel as a moral realist. Yeah, I'm feeling better right right now. Okay. You've, you've, really, you've really perked me up. Let me say a couple of things quickly and maybe get you to react to them. Um, I mean, it, these are both related to the question of can we claim any kind of objectivity when we make the judgment that there's moral progress, that 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 you're closer to some moral truth when you consider all human beings worthy of decent treatment than if you only consider your tribe uh, worthy of that. Um, one thing is I want to emphasize the evolutionary, the Darwinian account of the moral intuitions is not that the moral intuitions themselves are truthful. It is that... Uh, it is that they have served some function or another. Uh, they have in some sense or another been selfish in their logic, at least have been conducive to the, to the, the genes replication. Uh, and they tend to, by virtue of that kind of selfishness, they tend to, 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 uh, involve biases. I, I, I mean, uh, in other words, you know, good, Evildoers should be punished and people who do good should be rewarded. That may be defensible as an abstract moral principle, but it's pretty clear that human beings have a bias in judging who has done good and who has done bad. And it's a bias in favor of them, their family, their group, and so on. So um, 
I, I just want to be clear on that. The Darwinian account is not a naive account. That's not the argument for moral realism. Um, but at the same time, one thing uh, science helps us do is um, is is disentangle the biases. And and you know, if you accept uh, some moral premise, such as that, well. Yeah, from a utilitarian point of view, it's good to reward good behavior and, and discourage bad behavior. Um, disentangling the biases can help us do that more effectively and understand uh, more what a clear view would be given that assumption of what's moral, morally good. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think what happened is that at a certain point in our development, we became rational. And I don't know what good that was initially and – you know, God knows how it happened, but I think that the development in morality, fitful as it's been, um, isn't so much a matter of our crafting sets of principles that better serve the concrete interests of the group. What we discovered is that we were treating people differently on the basis of considerations which, on reflection, were not good reasons for treating them differently. And the circle expands because we realize that we cannot justify our conduct by compelling reasons to those who are adversely affected by it. And if we can't justify our conduct to the people affected by it, then we realize that the principles we're acting on were mistaken. That's rational progress. I don't know whether that's fully a matter of our accepting principles that are more useful in the other sense. But it's possible, at least, that some of the elements of that our evolved intuition, such as the one I alluded to, that, that we tend to frame our moral arguments in a way that presupposes that like cases should be treated alike. You know, you you, you hear that somebody's done some bad thing, and if you're going to condemn it, you need to convince yourself that you would not have done it. You know, uh, uh, I wouldn't have done that uh, in that case. If you can show me that I would have done it, then I have to admit that uh, I can't condemn it. Either I'm bad or it's good. Uh, and similarly, you know, I deserve this because of X, Y, and Z. Um, there's a funny line in a Fred Astaire movie uh, where, where they have this argument about, but wait, this is my hotel room. No, it's, and finally a guy just says, but I am Bandini. That's like his name, I think. And Fred, Fred Astaire says, you got me there, pal. It's like a, it's like a very wry comment on moral philosophy, but, um, but, but, uh, the uh, where was I anyway? So so well, what's the um, story about this? In a hierarchical society, you can agree that like cases should be treated alike, and still think that the fact that I'm a prince and you're not right shows that the cases aren't alike. So I'm entitled to things to which you're not right. entitled. But just you have about, to say that yeah. you, you can't just say I'm me. You have to say I'm a prince. That's my point. That that's what may be intuitive that you at least have to go to that trouble. Right. And one thing we want to understand is the connection between that point, which says that at least formally, any defensible moral principle has to be statable in general terms without mentioning particular individuals. How you get from that to the um, ever widening circle of moral equality that Peter Singer was pointing to. Because his point is not just that we regard more and more things in the universe as counting for something. Right. It's that we regard more and more things as counting equally. 
as having the same moral standing as the in-group. And right. that's where the real moral, moral progress has been, that there is no moral distinction between Greek and barbarian, no moral distinction between men and women, no moral distinction, maybe, between human beings and other animals insofar as what's at issue is the kind of suffering which human beings and other animals are all capable of. That radical thing doesn't follow from the mere fact that moral principles need to be stateable in general terms. Right. And Peter's argument is that fundamentally it is reason that takes us from the intuition that like cases should be treated alike to moral progress. In non-zero, I argued that the system gets a big boost from the way technologies have drawn us into non-zero-sum relationships with people further and further away in more and more different tribes and cultures and have forced us to uh, – it made it in our interest to treat them decently and led us to – maybe then led us to reflect on uh, how superficial differences can mislead us. I have to say, it, it, to the extent that uh, the animal welfare movement makes progress – that's an argument that what Peter's emphasizing is important because I, I do not have to treat a pig nicely to get by in life, right? That, that has to be a rational, uh, consideration. And, 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 and to an almost surprising extent, that seems to be happening. It's really uh, something. I agree. So maybe final thing. I just want to, uh, the, 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 this intuition that sentient it's better in some deep sense for sentient beings to be happy than sad or to, or to, to feel pleasure than to suffer. Um, I think you'd agree with me. Okay, uh, on the one hand, you can say, look, that's just our intuition. We have all kinds of intuitions that are turn out to be, we would all say wrong and blah, blah, blah. That's all true. But that is a qualitatively different kind of intuition, right? There, there's It has some kind of special status it's it's for example it's just a weird fact of the universe that all sentient beings behave as if that were the truth i mean they they act as if their desired state is one of pleasure we're all acting like that and there aren't i don't think there's anything else you can say that of you're nodding your head it's true i can imagine someone saying i'll give you a story about why it's so and Pain is, by its very nature, aversive. So in the experience of pain, you experience yourself being motivated to get out of that state. And likewise, in the experience of pleasure, pleasure is, by its very nature, attractive. So when you're in a state that involves pleasure, you find yourself motivated to sustain it. It might be that, as a result of some pretty elementary mechanism, we construe that motivation to avoid pleasure, pain and pursue pleasure as a way of detecting the goodness of pleasure and the badness of pain. So what's psychologically immediate is the motivational force of those states. And that's universal because it's built into the nature of those states right. to have that motivational force. We move from that motivational force to the idea that these things have a kind of normative force or right. value. We see pleasure as good and pain as bad. And that transition is a transition. Yeah, that's where questions arise. Some people might say, well, okay, fine, let's do, let's do all agree that pleasure is good, but that is just a social convention between us and all other sentient beings in the universe. We're all agreeing on that because we're inclined to, but it's a convention. 
Even so, I would say there is a special status to this thing. It's different. I mean, maybe another way to put it is I think that the the fact that it is like something to be alive, in other words, the fact of sentience, is the reason you can say there is meaning in the universe. And uh, I'm not sure what other facts I can say that about. Um, um, and and if you will, uh, say, well, go a little further, what is what do you mean? What does it have? You know, you immediately have to mention the fact that, well, the, the fact that it's like something to be alive makes you capable of certain subjective experiences uh such as enjoyable ones and 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 so on i i don't i think i don't know where to go from this so i'll stop now i mean there's a view and this just this will connect this uh line about the meaning of meaningfulness in life with moral realism there's a view that says what gives life meaning in one sense of that phrase is um engagement with real value. So just having a course of experience isn't enough to give your life meaning. You could be seeing red and blue and have, you know, and that might be chaotic. It might be orderly, but it wouldn't give your conscious life any meaning for you unless among the things that you registered in your conscious life were things that are worth attending to things that are worth integrating into your life. So, Consciousness is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for a meaningful life. Another necessary condition is objective value. And a life is meaningful when things that are objectively valuable are registered as such in the experience of a conscious being. It could be low-level experience of pleasure. It could be high-level experience of you know, aesthetic beauty and things like that. But in any case, you don't have a plausible account of what makes for meaningfulness in conscious experience without that mixture of objective value and subjective registering of it. Because if there were no objective value, then your life could be like the life of, you know, the couch potato who sits around watching stupid TV all the time and thinks his life is fabulous. That is my life, by the way, and it's, it is fabulous. And if the notion of a meaningful life means anything, it's got to be possible to be mistaken about whether one's life is in fact meaningful in the way one takes it to be. Mm-hmm. And if you can be mistaken about the meaningfulness of your life, then there have to be some objective facts that constrain whether your mm-hmm. life is in fact, and those are among the objective, maybe not moral, but um, evaluative facts that we've been talking about that moral realists believe in that everybody else doesn't believe in. Mm-hmm. So that view about meaningfulness in life that I was just alluding to is the view of Susan Wolf in her book. Ah, what's the name of the book? Do you know? Meaning in life, I believe something like that. Um, I should know the name of that book. It's a fabulous book and it shows you one thing that turns on this question of moral realism, because that account of what makes a life meaningful, you can't give unless you think that there are objective values that can be brought into a life to make it. Yeah a life that's meaningful for the person who's living it. Yeah. I guess maybe the thought I'm having and trying but failing to express is just something like uh, 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 an assertion of uh, of moral realism might begin with a conditional like, if life has meaning at all, then 
I'm a, you have to be a moral realist, if that makes sense. That is so. Um, Derek Parfit, one of the one of the greats, great moral philosophers of our time, his pa- passed away what two years ago, a year ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. His um, big book, his last book, is called "On What Matters," and it's an incredibly intricate, long, exhaustive argument for the conclusion that if anything matters at all, moral realism must be true. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because any reason to do anything, to do this rather than that, if there's a reason to get up in the morning, moral realism must be true. That's interesting. Um, I'll have to look into that. I, I actually want had dinner with him and several other people. And one thing that came through is he doesn't seem to have a lot of the, some of the baser human impulses that some of the, I forget the details, but he seemed to be very different from me in a good way. <laughs> so you think we've gotten to the bottom of this? Oh, absolutely. I'm going to leave you with a thought. Did you see this Elon Musk tweet about quantum physics and the living in the simulation? I did not. Uh, maybe you've heard this before. This is on a totally different topic, but this was just a few days ago. I hadn't heard it. So he, you know, as we know, Elon Musk thinks we're living in a simulation. And he, he, his, now he's got what amounts to kind of another argument for why you should believe this, I guess. He, he, he seems to be alluding to the interpretation of quantum physics, which says that subatomic realities does not come into definite form until it is observed. You know, that's one interpretation. And he says, um, that's because, uh, if you look at like video games, like they, the computer only has the power to render what you as the player are seeing from this perspective. They, they don't render the entire universe in which you imagine yourself to be. Like, if you walk down the hall, they're not going to render the hall until you get the end of the hall until you get to the end of the hall. Because a computer only has so much power. So that would explain why, you know, I guess in this, in this scenario, uh, the indeterminate, you know, the wave function, the uncollapsed wave function is like raw code and it takes computer power to render it into uh, the form that we observe into definite form. And you see how this all fits together, right, Gideon? I got my doubts about this. <laughs> okay. I want to. Okay. I wanted to give you something to think about. All and maybe, right. maybe we'll talk about this next time if I can lure you onto this platform again. Um, thank you so much. Uh, your book is the Norton Introduction to Philosophy. That's the, the, uh, the textbook, the, the unorthodox in a good way textbook that you're co-editor of. And any anything else you want to steer people toward that you've written or that you – I don't think you tweet, do you? No, I don't tweet. That's why I missed out on that Elon Musk thing. There you go. That's another reason you should tweet. Not- you know, let me steer people, if they aren't there already, to something you mentioned at the outset, namely the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. I think when people look back on the development of the – internet in its first 25 years or whatever it is, they will see the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy as one of the monumental achievements of this period. It is a comprehensive encyclopedia of philosophy that includes the history of philosophy and every topic, no matter how micro, in contemporary philosophy, articles written 
at great length by the world's experts in the field in terms that are designed to be accessible to any undergraduate student interested in the topic. Um, the level is consistently high, and it's all free. Mm-hmm. The labor is all donated, except for a small handful of people, and it will be available for free in perpetuity. And that, for professionals, for students, for everyone, that is a reasonable place to start with any philosophical question you might have if you want help. And the fact that it exists is an extraordinary testament to Mm -hmm. the editor who conceived it, Ed Zalta, and his team. Without them the world would be significantly poorer. And if there's one thing to point people to in philosophy these days, I think it's that. Yeah, we're, whenever I've checked into it, it's been very impressive. Not, not that I'm fit to judge in all realms. But um, yeah, before the online world, before that, uh, what I had was the Macmillan, the, the, the what is it, four or eight volume version you get as a free thing with, remember the book of the month club? Yeah, was two, two th- I joined twice so that I could get two things. The Oxford English Dictionary, the one with a magnifying glass, uh, and uh, and the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. That, that that seems like it's pretty good, right? The, the Macmillan Encyclopedia? Yeah, but... It's, it's nothing. It's, it's nothing compared to the Stanford Encyclopedia. It's uneven. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that recommendation. Uh. Thanks for this. Uh. It's, I have found it fascinating, and um. And I hope to see you again. To be continued. Okay. See. You. Thanks.